there is still this total sense of excitement about the fact that they are making gorgeous stuff and keeping themselves alive, that people in the rest of the world think they make beautiful stuff and they don't want a single name on anything. Hello, all my like-minded and yet uniquely varied creative friends out there. Thank you for joining me for the Sage Arts Podcast. This is Sage. I am going to be joined here in just a minute with a, to me, very special guest. We'll be talking a lot about different ways of viewing our art, different ways of viewing the world uh, in service of our art, and the way other people see it to just give us a different perspective. I think that would be really eye-opening for a lot of us. So get settled in and... I have to tell you guys, I wasn't going to say anything initially, but it's really hard because oftentimes I start off this podcast and say, you know, I'm here, my dogs are around me and the chair is, the comfy chair is open and, and ready for you, which it is again today. But unfortunately, our little pack got smaller this last week. The older of our two dogs, a 12-year-old American Eskimo, was diagnosed last Friday with metastatic lung cancer. So we don't know what the primary cancer was. After desperate calls for like all day on Monday, just trying to find an oncologist, we finally got him in on Tuesday, got him a bunch of meds to make him comfortable. And then Thursday morning, he decided he just had enough of all that and went on his own terms. It was a really hard week. I didn't get a lot of sleep because, you know, worrying and it was just a difficult time. So I apologize if my intros and outros might not sound as energetic as usual, but I'm just exhausted from lack of sleep. And then, of course, we're emotionally trying to adjust to our missing little guy. I think Brett and Ember are probably having a little harder time than I am. I tend to have kind of, I don't know, a positive view of death in that I see how it's part of a cycle of which this crazy miraculous thing called living is also a part. We all get to take a stab at living for a little while. It's such a privilege, such a wonderful gift and adventure to be able to be here. So passing away is to me just a return of our energy back into the cosmos. I just think that whatever we do with all the energy that we have, we should Aim to make it as good and positive and loving as possible so when our spirits pass on, we are adding good and positive energy back into the world. And I think Kimba absolutely did that. He could be such a little grumpy guy, (laughs) but, you know, he loved us fiercely and he was so present in the world. Such a good little creature, such a passionate little guy. And I just really feel like I learned a lot from him just because of the way he, he seemed to look at the world. So. So that's my news and why I haven't been quite as active on social media, just trying to love and hug on that little guy as much as I could. And I'm glad that we did set that time aside. But do come in and join me and settle in. We have a beautiful discussion coming up. But I did want to stop and thank a couple of people. Margo Ashmore, thank you for supporting us financially. And thank you for showing up for the Zoom call that we had. It was a pretty small little crowd, but great conversation. And that we talked for like an hour and 15 minutes and just flew by. So I appreciate everybody that showed up for that. I do have one that was scheduled for the 18th, but I am going to have to put that off because I put off some other things this week with what happened to Kimba. And I'm going to have to take that time out next week. So I will reschedule as soon as possible. And I will let you know through the newsletter and on the Facebook group, the Sage Arts Share Space group. So you can join that on Facebook and sign up for the newsletter via the show notes or the homepage of the sagearts.com. Look for the news and notices button. And as always, and briefly, just if you do want to support this podcast, I really appreciate 
any kind of giving back you want to do, you can do that monetarily on Buy Me a Coffee or through PayPal. You can find those buttons on the homepage of the Sage Arts Podcast, as well as in the show notes. And again, everything that I mentioned is in the show notes. You can reach out to me with comments uh, about the podcast or anything that you want to say through the contact page on the sagearts.com or through Instagram or Facebook under the Sage Arts Podcast pages. You can send me messages or posts to the posts on there. And we're going to leave the business there so we can get to this conversation. Now, my guest, Wendy Moore, is going to talk about a group that she's been very actively involved in for a while, Saminat Nepal, and just the spelling because it doesn't end up coming up in the conversation. It's S-A-M-U-N-N-A-T dot C-O. That's the website that you can go to. And of course, Wendy will explain what that has to do with art, what they do through this organization. It's really just a wonderful project. So I'll stop with the blathering on my end and let's go join Wendy. My guest today is Wendy Moore. She's a mixed media sculptural and jewelry artist, a teacher, an activist, and a self-professed work in progress. <laughs> so thanks for joining me today, Wendy. Oh, it's so good to be here, Sage. It's always lovely talking to you. Yes, we've had more than a few conversations here and there over the years. So, so this will be fun. I'm really looking forward to this. There's a lot of great insight from for you and in, in your journey artistically and otherwise. You have just I just such a great story. So what is your artistic and creative focus right now? I guess, like you said, I, I use mixed media, primarily polymer clay, primarily make wearable art, jewelry, uh-huh. but I do dabble in other things. But yeah, that, that sort of is the focus. It's, it's changing. I think that's why I said work in progress because yeah. things change. So, okay, you live in Australia and you were in yes. Canberra, but you're... North or South? Yeah, yeah, been a little bit nomadic. So now I'm living in a place called Albury, which is, it's a beautiful regional sort of centre on Australia's longest river, which is the Murray River. And it's where I lived for 20 years. We raised a family here. But then in 2006, left and sort of began this slightly nomadic existence where we went to Nepal and then came back lived in Outback Australia and then Canberra and then (laughs) just a month ago I decided it was time to come back here. So this very much feels like home even though it wasn't where I was born Yeah, but it's a lovely place. So this could be it for a while but you know you never know. You've had a very colorful life and a lot of the questions I ask people as artists don't apply to you as readily. So like usually I ask you like do you have an art business? To say you have a business is probably not the right word, Well, but you do something besides make art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a, a tiny business. I do teach and I also sell the stuff that I make. It primarily started that, you know, I wanted to be able to cover my costs and pay for my trips to Nepal because right. I was doing that a couple of times a year after we lived there. I started off in health, so I didn't ever make a living from my art until probably about 10 years ago. But yeah, outside art might be working with the women of, of some of that. And, and in a way, that is like my other job. You know, I mean, I spend a lot of my time yeah, on yeah. that. And, and tell the listeners what that is. First of all, it's in Nepal, because I don't think you mentioned yeah. that, right? Yeah. So it's, it's yeah. not and in I'll, Australia. I'll, so yeah, when we went to, to Nepal, my intention then was that, you know, I just sort of had this fabulously indulgent time just making my art and discovering my artistic voice and property crap and then met these fairly amazing Nepali group of friends 
who had already established an organisation called Samanat Nepal. And it was very much for women who'd been trafficked. These friends had all worked in the field of trafficking because a lot of Nepali women are trafficked. And they were just aware that what was happening wasn't really working, that just rescuing women wasn't stopping them from being trafficked and from being vulnerable to being trafficked. And they realised that, you know, it's not because these women are naive or easily led. Underneath that was this huge issue of they had nothing else to do that they could earn an income. They had kids to educate or parents to look in. You know, so it was desperate poverty that was driving sort of desperate action. So their goal was to set up an organisation just in their community, which was pretty remote, long way away from Kathmandu, just to provide women with the means to earn an income. So they were training the women in, you know, really local things like owning a dairy cow or having um, a vegetable garden or working as a tailor. And it was just that I happened to meet Kukula Basnet, who saw me sitting there making my earrings and discovering my inner self. And she said, you know, what are you doing? And I said, oh, as sometimes happens, it sort of all just, you know, burbled out. <laughs> she thought this was fabulous and said, well, maybe you could teach these women. Maybe some of these women could get some work doing that. And I initially thought, oh, I don't think that would work. There's no clay in Nepal. There's no ovens in Nepal. There's about 50 billion reasons it wouldn't work. But to cut a long story short, we gave it a crack for 12 months and that was 16 years ago. And now there's between 10 and 15 women at any point in time who earn their total income making the jewellery. So they sell the jewellery and earn an income from it. But then on top of that, probably 90%, even probably 95% of the funding for the organisation comes from the jewellery sales. So there's no government funding. We've got a few fabulous regular donors, but I'd say 90 to 95% of the funding comes from the jewellery sales. So when I lived there, I spent every second with the women working together with them. And then COVID notwithstanding, (laughs) um, I now go over twice a year and spend another month, five weeks, twice a year, just sort of working out what is it that they need to know, you know, how can I help them? So sort of, you know, mentoring, I suppose. Right, right. And my husband's also really, really involved. So he he comes over once a year, but we, we're not on the board. You know, we're just kind of sharing club, really. <laughs> well, what a serendipitous meeting. So you were living in Nepal at the time. Yeah, we were staying in someone's house and until the little flat where we were going to move to the unit was sorted and, you know, everything takes forever in Nepal. So there was, you know, a bit of a hiccup. And so, yeah, I was sitting on someone's balcony just faffing around with my stuff and because everything's outside, so you see everyone, there's kind of no, you know, privacy. (laughs) And Nepali people are very curious and, you know, it was just, yeah, she just wandered up and said, oh, tell me all about this. What, you know, what's going on here? And that's where it started. So I do, I constantly pinch myself and think, what are the Amazing. odds of me meeting Copula? She'd never, you know, I mean, I think there were about sort of six Westerners in the town at that time. She yeah. was a brother. And totally life-changing for me. Right. Just one of those wonderful, wonderful things that you think, oh, you know, thanks, universe. I'm glad that happened. Yeah, really incredible. So you're very involved in that kind of thing. I mean, even locally at home, you do a lot of activism-focused activities. Yeah. We sort of set up a an Australian summon-up because 
it, initially the women weren't able to get credit card, you know, there are all sorts of things that meant it would be better for an Australian group to handle mm-hmm. the sort of dissemination of the jewellery. So we don't sell it. The women order everything, but then I'll pay for it from an account that we've got here. And then we've completely revamped their website and look at helping them with their data collection. And they say, oh, look, we want to do this. Can you give us a hand with that? We'll sort of say, okay, well, you know, let's see. But very much responding to what the board wants. So the board now is more than 50% made of women who've come through the program. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. fantastic, yeah. But there's a lot to do here as well. So it's kind of like a part-time volunteer yeah. job. So these are the things that you do, and you don't have a job outside of art and working with these women. No, no. So it all really started when I stopped my sort of serious job. So I'd worked in brain injury rehab for about Oh. I don't know, 30 years. And because I knew my language, my Nepali language would never be good enough to do that kind of rehab work there, that was a big enough excuse for me to sort of stop that. And it was interesting because I was so passionate about that job. I mean, people would say to me, how are you going to go when you stop working? You know, I mean, your whole identity has been, you know, very involved in pediatric brain injury, all that sort of, how are you going to go? And I think, yeah, how am I going to go? I went fine. <laughs> I just went on to the next thing, which kind of surprised me because I'd you know, given myself months just to explore. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, this happened within six months and it was just wonderful. The next thing. Yeah, I think you just need something to focus yeah. on, something that you're passionate about well, and helping people well, in right. particular, right? Yeah. yeah. Look, I think, I think I always had this little thing of thinking, oh, wouldn't it be nice if there was something over there that combines my love of, you know, creating with doing something vaguely useful. So that was as <laughs> much of a plan as there was. I thought if that happened, that would be nice. And then happened. And then it just walked right up to you. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Would you say you have any passions outside of art and your activism work? Yeah, look, I think you could almost call me a tiny weeny bit multi-passionate I do. I mean, I love getting out in nature. It's sort of as necessary as breathing. So I really like getting out into the bush and and walking. But it's an enthusiastic passion about stuff rather than a knowledgeable passion about stuff. So I I, I love birds. We've got fabulous birds and, you know, they would come up and feed from our balcony. And it was just, you know, I think, wow, how how amazing is this that this bird is here on my end? And then we've got gorgeous family and gorgeous grandkids. So, yeah, there's kind of a lot. If anything, sometimes it's working out how to rein in the passion. (laughs) <laughs> kind of <laughs> manage them. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. that's a good problem to have. Well, let me ask you some of the fun get to know you questions. Yeah. How would your family or friends describe what you do in terms of your artwork? I think they'd say it's loud. I'm, I think it was a family <laughs> member who said it's kind of weird because I'm a deeply introverted person, but I make this very extroverted art. I think they think it's funny that there's me and then I sort of do this kind of look at me, look at me type jewelry. <laughs> they all think that's pretty funny. I think it's ironic because I think they all think I'm pretty focused and driven. That's a word that I would have to yeah. say comes up a lot, which is focused. I think that's deeply ironic because I see myself as a bit scatty. But yeah, they would say, you know, sort of focused, colourful, 
blunt and they'd probably say I swear way too much, which I'm really <laughs> trying to troll. Yeah, I don't know. I think your version of swearing in Australia and our version are very different things because I'm like, you don't say anything. <laughs> well, I haven't started but, judging. Yeah, oh, okay, I- okay. Well, we'll hold, we'll hold off on the judgment there. <laughs> Now, how would they describe what you do in terms of your activism and your charitable work? I think, again, they'd use similar words. They'd say she's very passionate, very driven, very focused. I think they would use those sorts of words. I mean, I'm really lucky. The family are all so phenomenally supportive. They've all been to Nepal. They've met the people involved. Yeah, I think that's what they'd say, you know, that. Oh, yeah, if Wendy, if we can't get on to Wendy, she'll be doing a Zoom call with the girls or something like that, you know. Oh, that's great. Now, if someone was to write a biography of you today, what do you think it'd be titled? Well, it's just funny when you said before about colourful life because, I mean, it's such a cheesy kind of thing, but I thought, I think in a way it would be called a colourful life because I am living a colourful life today anyway. Yeah. When I think of you, I think about color, not just your work, but all the things that you do. I mean, in Nepal, everything's so colorful, you know, absolutely. so I I see you there and there's lots of color. I see you in your studio and there's lots of color and um, you've lived a very varied life. Yeah. Lots of different things that you've done. So I think colorful is good. It's not cheesy. I think that's a good, good title. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I love asking people if they're a planner or a pantser. Do you like to plan things or do you do things by the seat of your pants? I always find it interesting between what comes out in the artwork and what is the process yeah. in the background. What would, what would you reckon? What would you guess be, right? I think you start out planning and then you just pants the whole thing after that. Because of my training, I was totally a planner. Plan, 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 plan. Uh-huh. And I think I think even with respect to life, we had to do a lot of planning to work out how we were going to be able to get to Nepal, live on a Nepali salary, all that sort of thing. So there was a lot of planning involved there. And then you go there and, you know, there's a bit of a saying that you make a plan there basically so you know what won't happen. And (laughs) then you have to have, then you have, you know, plan B, C, D, E, etc., I suppose the other thing is there were a few life experiences which have turned life totally on its head and sure. we thought everything we planned was, you know, just going to come to naught. So I went through a bit of a phase of thinking, well, you can't plan. No point planning. You've got no control. That's it. I'm just, you know, <laughs> floating. And then eventually kind of got to that middle path where I thought, okay, well, you actually don't have as much control over life as you think, yeah. but you can be ready for stuff. So now I would say exactly like you said, I kind of plan to a point and then fly by the seat of my pants within it. It's a bit like Lael said, I think, in Lael McDill in one of the podcasts uh-huh. where she said she sort of planned the journey and just made sure she'd have a place to stay and then left it really open within that. And I thought, yeah, that's kind of how that's I right. live. Oh, I can't believe I hit it on the nose. I think I might be a first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know me pretty well. It just makes yeah. sense. I think it's being flexible, being responsive. I think right. I, I think that's important now. Yeah, and not being too attached to your plans. Absolutely. I think that was the biggest life lesson in Nepal. One of the hugest things I learned, if my happiness was based on my plans working out, that was pretty flimsy grounds for happiness. I had to sort of rethink that one. <laughs> I think it's people who who have had a lot of journeys that we count more on the journey than on the destination. 
And I think when you do focus on the journey more than where you're ending up, I think you're a lot happier by the time you get there because you didn't have a lot of expectations in between. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's that whole thing about being, not doing, you know, focus on the being and not focusing on the doing. Yeah, we could get very philosophical, say. We could could, (laughs) could still go there. (laughs) We'll say that that for our next visit. All right, so here's the here's the dangerous question. What is one thing that most people don't know about you that they would find surprising? I think people, if they meet me face-to-face, I'm actually profoundly deaf, which was ironic because I started my professional life as a speech pathologist, and so that was a pretty oh. dumb career. So now I have a cochlear implant, which is yeah, sort of just this amazing... I think Australian invention. So most people have got hundreds of electrodes in their cochlea to help them hear, and obviously I had hardly any. And so I've had 28 implanted in my brain, and now I wear this little device, which means that it's possible for you and me to have this conversation. And it's just, it's transformed my life. So it was a very gradual hearing loss. I started going deaf in my 20s. So when I had the surgery, it took about six months to do the rehab, and I did have moments of thinking, what have I done? Because it was really hard because you actually hear sound almost robotically initially. So your brain has to learn, like I couldn't pick, you know, is it a male voice? Is it a female voice? I couldn't tell that. And I really did spend quite a bit of time thinking this was a bad move. But then slowly, slowly, amazingly, your brain readjusts. Now I can hear things I haven't heard for 30 years. For the first sort of 12 months, I'd be constantly saying to my husband, what is that? What is that? <laughs> and and he'd say that's the washing machine. It's just finished the cycle, or that's yeah. the indicator on the car. So it really is. It is just amazing. So I've got that in one ear and a hearing aid that talks to it in the other yeah. ear. And yeah, people might not know that about me. People will often say, "Oh, that's interesting. You don't look deaf." I think, mm, okay. What would deaf look like? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very strange. <laughs> lost. I look lost a lot. I look yeah. Lost. <laughs> so yeah, I'm talking directly into your implant. Yeah, so that's right. That's we're connected, right. but like your husband walked in and gave you a cup of coffee, but he couldn't hear me. No, absolutely of, not. That's yeah, right. I'm, I'm always that's just right. waving at him, <laughs> but he couldn't hear me because it's yeah. going directly into your head. So I can suddenly start talking in a way that might look quite loopy, and it's just that I've <laughs> Got a call. (laughs) (laughs) Got a call in my head. Technology, that's just crazy. All right. Uh, We've gotten a little background on what you do. We've gotten background on the women, but your artistic journey, where did you start in art? I mean, I've always loved art. So even as a a kid, I would just be drawing, 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 drawing. And my mum and dad were, you know, I mean, they'd really encourage that. I can remember mum was changing the blinds and the curtains. And so in our garage, she hung up all these blinds and gave my sister and I some paints and just said, oh, you can paint. And ah, oh, just felt like the most fabulous thing. So it was very encouraged. And I would draw on everything. I would get in trouble for sort of obliterating messages from people because I'd drawn all over them. So I did love that. And I did art at school. I did art all the way through to my leaving certificate. But then Not so much from my parents, but the community that I was kind of involved with at the time, there was very much an emphasis on, you know, doing something that kind of served. And it was a bit hard for me to see how doing anything art-related would be that kind of career. And also, I just didn't have the confidence. I always thought I was kind of okay, but 
didn't have anything hugely to offer. So I really got sidetracked, I suppose. I didn't do much at all, got very involved with studies and then work and then family. And then it was when the kids were little that I sort of just started dabbling again. And I did silk painting for a long while. I really enjoyed silk painting. Oh, great. Yeah. I did a, a community course on surface design. Then I found polymer clay. And I guess that was a medium that appealed because I could do something and then leave it and come back to it. You know, whereas printing, which I'd love, and ceramics, stuff like that, you needed big slabs of time. And because I had two little ones at that stage, you know, you never get slabs of time. So it just sort of fitted in with life, you know, and then just slowly doing more and playing more. And were you doing this type of artwork while you were working on brain injury? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it was, it was very much a sort of, I guess you'd call it a hobby. And I had this darling friend and we'd sort of have this set up where every Friday we'd meet and do just a few hours of, you know, we'd call it playing mm-hmm. and we'd just play. And then we thought we've got to finance our addiction. And so right. we <laughs> decided that we needed to start selling stuff. So we'd have these house sales and we both used to make these sort of funny little, fabulously well-endowed figures. I think they had the boobs that we always wanted. Anyway, so for some (laughs) reason, we thought it would be a really good idea to call ourselves Luscious Lady, to sell this stuff, which was just so wrong at so many levels that we just, (laughs) in our naivety, didn't think of that. So we did, we made great sales. We did sort of find people often thought we were selling something different. (laughs) So yeah, we buy our clay and do a bit more and we taught a bit and I think there was just this growing sense of I just want to be doing more of this and more of this and um, it kept me sane while I was doing a job I loved but that was very demanding but there was also a sense that one day I'd really like when I've grown up I'd really like to do this (laughs) full time. I grow up. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you had been doing the brain injury rehab and then you went to Nepal and that's when you thought you had the opportunity to explore your artistic side. Well, I think I just thought I could sit in a room. No one had known me. No one had had any expectations. Um, yeah. I could just play with clay all day until I worked out what I wanted to do. You know, I, I think because we were going to such a totally different environment, I had no expectations or demands of myself. I would, right. I could be so much kinder to myself because I could expect that I would stuff up and make mistakes because I'd never lived there before. So it was really, yeah. I was just saying, oh, look, I'll give myself six months just seeing what happens and working out what happens. And and so that was, that was a real luxury to be able to sort of take yourself away from the expectations of, you know, society and life and whatever and just kind of let not a new me evolve, but work out, well, who am I away from the constructs of, you know, doing what I normally do as a an ABI worker in Australia in a normal setting with people who, you know, think that I'll be a responsible human being. <laughs> <laughs> I think I thought I might be a bit irresponsible for a while. So you want to be an irresponsible artistic yeah. Nomad. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Adult. <laughs> That's right. Well, you told me there's a, a lot of other things that were discovered through this, not just the opportunities to help these women, but for you as a Westerner, you saw a really different view of art and how these people saw creativity. And that's what I really wanted to talk about because I find it really interesting and educational for us 
to understand how other people might look at the process of creating and the process of what we call art, doing it from a very different position than what we do. So why don't you describe to me what you saw there that you thought was so different? Yeah, look, it it was such an interesting thing. I can remember, because I had my kind of brain rehab therapist hat on, I can remember when we did sort of get into things and I would do a lesson plan and I would say, right, the goal of our lesson is and our first step would be this. Is, you know, I did it for myself and partly because yeah. I was sort of learning the language too, so I needed to remember stuff and prepare. But then what I realised is that any assumptions that I had made needed to be really thoroughly investigated and often thrown out the window. So, for example, artisans in Nepal, I, I guess this was the first big thing, the, the artists who were truly respected and revered were the ones who could most faithfully and beautifully copy traditional things. So for a start, legally in Nepal, you are not meant to talk about caste or think in terms of caste. Oh, interesting. But the reality is that everyone knows what caste you're from and mm-hmm. often someone's name will identify what caste they're in. And the artisans they were often in a fairly low caste. It wasn't the lowest of the low, but, you know, they were low caste, which in the first place, that was a surprising thing for me. And the second place was that you tended to be born into it. So it wasn't like you suddenly right. thought, oh, love to be an artist. You know, you you probably were if you were born into that caste and you would get yeah. your training as you grew up because there would just be that expectation that that would be what you do. And then, as I said, right. the the skill or the you know the recognition came from being able to faithfully copy. So there wasn't a culture of rewarding or recognizing innovation or someone doing very different things. So there was this profound fear of making a mistake in education. It was probably more horrific to fail than to cheat. And so I think one of my biggest things early on was saying, you know, failing is only failing if you don't learn from it. You know, mistakes are how we learn. It's okay to make mistakes. So it took, I'd say, even years for the women to feel okay with suggesting something that didn't work the first time. And, you know, I'd be constantly saying, I make mistakes all the time. And I'd bring in my mistakes. I'd bring in my horrible things. And and say, but look what I've learned from doing this. So there was just the one big difference was just that whole approach to sort of learning from mistakes and taking risks, you know, all that kind of thing. And I mean, these were women weren't here because they wanted to discover their artistic voice or whatever. They were there because they wanted right. to learn how to do something so that they could educate their kids and survive, basically. Right. So then there were the more practical things like no one used an oven. Ovens were really hard to get. Most of them hadn't been a long way through school. So the whole idea of understanding, you know, preheating an oven or, you know, what, oh. what the temperature, you know, is really, really, really sort of basic stuff. And then I was so fascinated by the way more collaborative approach to art making and creativity. So I think certainly in the West, we've got this heightened sense of possessiveness about you know, oh, well, actually, that's my idea or yeah, I came right. up with that technique. We'd do something and I'd look at something they've done and say, oh, that's just fabulous. This is a great idea. Who thought of that? And 
the women at all smile and say, oh, we did. And I go, yeah, 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 but I had the idea. That was wonderful. And they'd say, well, we all did. And it was, <laughs> it was totally true. You know, it was this, they had just did not have a sense of, you know, one person might have said, oh, I wonder if we could do such and such. And the other one might have said, oh, yeah, and if we do that, we could do this. So then it became this thing that just became, you know, our idea, you know, rather right. than my idea. I found that so refreshing. I think there is an absolutely a place for ownership of things. But I think the thing that I just feel so often is that, oh, you know, there were so many times I'd do something and I'd think, I am a genius. I am hot shit. I have come <laughs> up with this amazing idea. This is going to go viral. And then before I'd even done something, someone somewhere else in the world would have done it completely unrelated to me. And I think, right. silly cow. Happens all the know, time. Happens mm -hmm. all the time. That's right. And, and the other thing too is that anything we do, we're standing on the shoulders of someone else. And I think right. it was a, such an interesting thing to learn. And even now, you know, absolutely there are women within the group who are more creative ideas might come to them more quickly or they might learn more quickly or whatever. But there is still this total sense of excitement about the fact that as a group, they right. are making this gorgeous stuff and keeping themselves alive, that people in the rest of the world think they make beautiful stuff. And they don't want a single name on anything. That Yeah. And refreshing is the word. It's just how lovely to hear about them being excited about themselves collectively. We're very driven to have an individualistic identity and to try to stand out. And for them to just be excited about the work and what they've done and not, you know, who they are, how it makes an identity for them just seems to epitomize what art really, I'm being opinionated, what art really should be about. About the making, yeah. right? And not about the identity, although obviously many of us identify as artists and as a big part of who we are and how, what we show the world. But just to hear that, just to hear that, like, we all did this and that's all they wanted and just to be yeah. excited for them as a group. When you really think about it, none of us these days, especially with as much as we are exposed to, are really doing anything completely in a vacuum on our own. That's right. We have the history that we've seen. We have the other people that we work with. They're the work that we see online all the time. And it's influencing everything that we're doing. A lot of our ideas are rooted in these things that we've seen or heard before. So just to hear of a group who's like recognizing that they didn't work towards that. That's just what they do. It's wonderful. I still get you know, goosebumps thinking about. So one of the artists is a, a gorgeous young woman called Pramila Acharya. And she, she runs said. This was early on. We were doing some training. And so I think it is important to remember where these women were all from. They were all in horrible situations, really difficult situations. And we'd been making this jewelry that we were going to sell. And she just said the biggest change for her was that she'd stopped thinking about herself as a victim and started thinking about herself as an artist. Yeah. I am, and so we try not to use that word victim anymore. They're survivors, right. survivors of violence or, you know, people who've experienced violence. You know, right. Pramila just said, that isn't about me now. I'm an artist. And so for me, that was kind of like, wow, this is it. That's kind of like the power of art. <laughs> yeah. sound cheesy. But no. seriously, like to lose yourself in it in that fashion. You know, it's one of the things that is discussed a lot. I, I don't know if in Australia, but we have issues with depression in the United States. 
Oh, I think hugely. a lot of it's been really yeah. highlighted since the pandemic, of course. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that depression often is rooted in kind of a self-involved view of identity. Mm. I mean, I'm not a psychologist or anything. That's just some things that I've read. So uh, <laughs> take that with yeah. a grain of salt and research if you don't think that's Probably. true. But uh, to hear that something like this can take you out of that self-involved view. I know for me, if I'm not creating that I, I will get depressed. And that's oh, something I've, I've actually been challenged uh, yeah. with all my life. But to be able to put yourself into something else, you know, oh, yeah. I'd love to hear that those ladies are having that experience. I had this wonderful co- conversation with the divine Kathleen Dustin. So one of the magic things that's been happening is that the women have been meeting live with Kathleen and then through Zoom meetings with Kathleen and Christine Durant. And the things that we've all said afterwards is that we all learn more about how all of us, including the women, how we all are. We learn more from our being than our showing or telling or doing or whatever. Mm-hmm. Kathleen, at one point, she dropped something and it was something beautiful that she'd made and she dropped the floor and so naturally, like you could tell she didn't even think about it. She picked it up and just said, oh, well, we can do that again. At the same time, when it dropped, everyone else around her so we're all standing her thinking my god this is the hands of god she's just created another magnificent so we all went and she just picked it up did it again and then one of the women said oh diddy because diddy means big sister so everyone calls everyone older than then big sister and fantastic if you're not great with names and so one of them said diddy you are laughing you are not angry and she said well you know, and then Copula said, I've got a saying, so I've sort of, you know, something bad might happen. I'll go, oh, well, no one's died. And, you know, so right. then Copula said, oh, well, no one's died. And, you know, it was just we all <laughs> we all laughed. But it was from seeing Kathleen modelling that, okay, well, yep, bad stuff happens. You pick it up, you fix it up, and you move on. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, it's mutual learning from each other in the context yeah. of our art, you know. Oh, that's the best. Yeah. And you had mentioned something about like when you made the lesson plans that you were going in with a certain idea of what you were going to do. And then it just kind of got thrown out the window Uh, because uh. we have a certain idea about what we are doing for them, but they're Uh. also doing for us. You've done a lot of teaching. I've done a lot of teaching. It's such a back and forth. It's not that, just yeah, I'm yeah, doing yeah. it for you, but you saw mm. that highlighted there, especially yeah. with these recent yeah. experiences with these big artists coming in and helping these women yeah. learn new designs. Yeah, and I think that's the biggest thing. I mean, one of the things that certainly Copula and I talked about right from the beginning was, I mean, we we had seen so many Westerners going to Nepal. I think it happens with a lot of you know countries where, you know, People like us, Sage, we can go into a country and we can think, we know what would help. And that is just the most dreadful attitude to have. And we saw, Val and I saw, so many gorgeous, well-intentioned people setting things up that then failed when they went back home or they lost interest or, you know, had a baby or whatever. And so that was one reason why we were absolutely adamant that we would never set anything up. We would never be on the board of anything. It would only be if someone saw that we had something to offer. I think one of the things I love doing sort of since 2011, I think, a friend and I used to do these tours where we'd take groups of people to Nepal and they'd spend four days with the women at Samanat Nepal. And one of the big things was that the women, the Nepali women, would teach the Westerners a polymer clay lesson. 
And for me, that was so profoundly important because when I first started, they would accept, I could have said anything and they'd have gone, oh, great. Yep. Okay. <laughs> that's right. And I'd say, no, that's not lie. That's wrong. I made that up. Like, <laughs> because I wanted them. I said, not everything that falls out of the lips of a Westerner is gold. I said, Some of it's absolute right. rubbish. So, I, you know, it was that thing of critical thinking. I said, you've got to listen to everything I say and think, actually, that's rubbish. Or, you know, that's a good idea, but make yeah. a judgment. Yeah. And they were yeah. so unwilling to judge Westerners. But these women said, for them, teaching the Westerners was quite profound. And I think for the Westerners, it was sort of like a really tangible lesson in. And people sometimes say, oh, you know, you do such a wonderful thing in Nepal. I think that's bullshit. I am so selfish. I do this <laughs> because this, you know, fills my cup. Yeah, You can't say that what you do is not charitable and generous, but it's just like you're getting something out of it as well. And it's, oh. it's good to recognize both sides of that, yeah. right? Yeah, 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 you know? yeah, yeah. It's just, it brings such joy. And to clarify, you're saying as an outsider from another country, you don't want to organize something for that country because the way they live there, what they do, what they understand is going to be oh, different than you do because they have a different viewpoint. Absolutely. And and cultural things, you know, there might be things that I'll think, well, I'm just quietly, I think this is a king-size priority and Copula will say, we could never do that because of X, Y, Z. So, right. it's so often I've learned that the women are the ones who understand how something will fly within the context of a very patriarchal society, how, you know, what will work, what won't. And and so we have this thing now where, and this actually came from a a, a beautiful man, Mark Ilfasaka, who is a brain injury rehabilitation specialist from the States. And he used to say, in the absence of meaningful activity, real change can't occur. Rehabilitation won't work unless there's a meaningful activity. And he talked about how whatever you do, you should constantly be asking yourself three questions. What works? What doesn't? And what do we need to do differently? And so these have become our kind of pillars of thinking about everything. So, you know, mm -hmm. whatever happens, we'll say, okay, what worked with this? What didn't work? And based on that, what will we do differently next time? So it's it almost sort of takes away that thing of, well, that was a king-size stuff-up. It was like, okay, well, that didn't work. What can we do differently next time? Oh, my gosh. Okay, that's like the basics of like everything, Bam. like what's working, what's not, what can we do differently with every piece of artwork, oh, the processes oh. that you work in your artwork, your business, you know, is it working, is it not working? What yeah. can we do differently? So And making time to do it. I think that's the other thing. Yeah. You can just bowl along and forget to stop. Right. Because a lot of times we don't stop and yeah. think. We just like, oh, that didn't work. Okay, mm. I'll do it again. Yeah. But you're not analyzing yeah. it. And that goes back to the like the episode on criticism. <laughs> a lot of people are afraid of criticism. But the, this that's basically what you're doing yeah. when you're doing it for yourself and for your own artwork. Yeah. You know what worked, what didn't, and what can you do differently yeah. next time. And if you do that, when you finish a piece or you get to a certain point in a piece, you can ask those kinds of questions. But if we're not asking ourselves those questions, we are not learning to the extent that we really could and really move forward a lot. But in any case, yeah, those I think those are great lessons um, for all of us. Yeah, just because they're Nepali doesn't mean everything they do is fantastic either. But it just means I would never say, I think this is the answer in that context. I don't know what it's like to have been in that kind of 
situation. I don't know how it feels to have left, you know, a really scary domestic violence situation. I don't know what is the most important thing. They do. And that's why I think it's so important that right. those women are on the board now. They're the ones calling the shots because they know. I think that's kind of an important viewpoint to take with whether we're teaching someone, we're helping someone, we're working with someone to realize that you're talking culturally, but we can even take that down to an individual level, that as individual artists, we all have a different experience and a different viewpoint. When I'm doing this podcast or writing blogs or not, I make a lot of exceptions to my statements. I'm like, It'll be this, but it may not be for you. Just like the whole idea of like, what's, what is success for you? People will tell you to be a successful artist, you have to do this. You have to go to these galleries. You have to sell this stuff. You have to have an online presence. Da, da, da. But individually, that may not actually get the kind of success for them that is useful for them, that is meaningful for them. And I think taking what you're saying and thinking in terms of just individually, each of us and everybody that we work with, it's the same thing. We have to look and say, okay, this is what's good for us, but not necessarily what's good for someone else. Even someone very similar to you, even someone working in the same medium may need something very different. About We've talked a lot about what the ladies have taught you, whatnot. Is there, are there any other like inspiring or surprising lessons um, for the artists and the people that are listening to this that you've learned from your work with the ladies in Nepal? Look, I suppose it's never, oh, you know, there's, as you can tell, how I could go on forever, surprising for an introvert, but there you go. <laughs> I think it's just to never forget just sort of the, um, just the wonder of being able to make stuff. So I remember another one of our gorgeous artists, Sharmila. So Sharmila is another one who um, has been with us right at the beginning. Actually, if people look at the the photograph on our website, there is Sharmila eyes and a whole lot of beads. The eyes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, those eyes yeah. are actually Shamila <laughs> and Pramila, who um, I'm told that. But Shamila once said, you know, I just I just love the fact that I've got these two ordinary hands and then this lump of clay and that I can make something beautiful from it. And I thought right. we can sometimes, you know, as makers, we can, you know, we can just kind of forget to say, hey, isn't this wonderful? And that that's just so precious. And I think, Isn't you know, it? Yeah. and there's one, you did this fabulous podcast, Sage, on your your preciousness <laughs> one. That was such a turning oh. <laughs> point for me because I thought, precious, talk oh. about precious. I am so precious. I, you know, I'm precious about time. I'm precious about materials. I'm precious about this. I'm precious about that. Yeah. And so I've sort of, as a result of listening to that, I've started this little ritual where when I sit down in my studio now, I do this thing, and I'm not woo-woo, but I sort of say, okay, my time is precious. It is hard to get time to come down here and do this, and my materials are precious. I haven't got all the money in the world to spend on them, but, and this is what came from your podcast, I say, my playing is precious, and my exploring yes. is precious. And I just remind myself that that is just as precious as, you know, producing something that people can say, oh, yes, that Wendy Moore, she's a worthwhile person. She made three pairs of earrings. You know, I mean, it's it's that it just yeah. because you forget. Well, I forget. I forget so easily. So I do. I just, I think it's, yeah. it's like stating an intention of saying, you know, playing, exploration, this stuff is so important. So, yeah. 
What a great way to start your studio sessions yeah. because we do get wound up in all the things that we've heard and we've been fed about being successful and, you know, in, in our own pressures that we put on ourselves to make money off of it or recover enough to pay for our materials yeah. so we can keep playing or whatnot. Yeah. But it is, it is really important those times, sure. like... It's kind of like, uh, I always refer to all my podcasts now, uh, <laughs> the necessity of doing nothing. Yes. Where I had to relearn daydreaming. Yes, yes. It was very hard for me to just stop and do nothing. Well, that, yeah. And in our, in, our, in our society, I think it's very hard these days, too. And But that's precious as well. All those things yeah. are necessary and yeah, precious yeah. for the process of being an artist and just a sane human being, <laughs> yeah, to be honest. Yeah, that's right. right. I think we do. We've sort of grown up with this, you know, Look, I even had a friend that used to say, you know, we've only got so much time. You've just got to fill every moment. Don't waste right. time. So I very much came from that. Don't waste the time. You know, I can lie down when I'm dead. And and then I just thought, you know, no, lying down now. <laughs> I've got to lie down now. You know, that you realize that, you know, it's not wasting your time to do that, to just sit and do sweet right. FA. You know, that some of that's really important. Well, I'm so glad you got so much out of that episode. Well, let's kind of wrap this up with closing questions. So what would you say is the most important lesson that you've learned over your career as an artist and a advocate for these ladies? Oh, yeah. I feel like it sort of really shaped the way I live. I think there's just this overwhelming sense of we're just so fucking lucky to be here. You know, I can wake up in the morning, I can breathe, I can stand up, you know, all those things that it would be easy to take for granted. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's it's really hard to say a single lesson, but I suppose with life and art, you can never control all the outcomes. You never, never, never can. So if you can learn to respond to what you've got in front of you, then you're going to get through better. Yeah, yeah. Well, I talk a lot about feeding your yeah. muse on this thing because I think it's really important to get a lot of input and not just to work and you know look at stuff online and just go to your studio. Yeah, we can't work in a vacuum. No, no, definitely. <laughs> How do you feed your muse? What kinds of things do you do to keep yourself inspired? You know, what kind of things do you do to bring into the conversation with the ladies? Yeah, yeah. Well, look, a lot of the the exchange with the women. I mean, that's sort of certainly yeah, yeah, yeah. as I said before nature I mean it's, I just I love getting into the bush and walking and you know like my kids will joke that we sort of sometimes barely walk 10 steps and it'll be oh would you look at that texture I've one one <laughs> holiday my my daughters did this sort of mock-up of me going can you believe the texture can you believe those colors <laughs> and I mean I think we were we we're traveling through Tibet it was quite brown and they just thought it was hysterical. But I'm going, oh, look at the colours, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I have to get, I go a bit mad if I don't get out into the bush and walk. Right. I love looking at, like, traditional crafts, ethnic crafts. I love looking at other cultures, huh. jewellery and artwork. I've got, you know, books of beads from Africa and stuff like that. Love all that. I could, you know, spend hours looking at those things. So museums and yeah, you know, I think lots of things are a source of inspiration and I think it's not rushing through life so much that you don't stop and look, you know, and I'm an innate yeah. innate rusher, so I just have to be more of a stopper. There's this there's this beautiful <laughs> poem. So this is probably at the moment this is gonna be read at my funeral, this poem. But Mary Oliver oh, has done okay. this beautiful poem called My Work is Loving the World. And you check out the poem, it's a gorgeous poem. Okay. But she talks about 
you know, that my work is mainly keeping your mind on what matters and standing still and learning to be astonished. And I remember when I read those words, I like that. I just felt, you know, something in my head was saying, will you just listen to this one? And it was, I think, just that phrase, learning to be astonished, because if you've got the right mind, like there's so much, you know, that that is astonishing and beautiful. So I just love that phrase. I like, yeah, I'm going to look that up. That's great. It's a beautiful poem. Mm -hmm. And it kind of reminds me of Lael McDill's talks about what the kids were doing, you know, and yeah, it's like being astonished by things Uh, and just seeing things as if they're new again. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a great way to go out there as an artist and, and get inspired just by Saying, yeah, yeah, this is not ordinary. None of these things that seem ordinary are really ordinary That's right. if you look at them closely, huh? So I almost feel silly asking you this question because I feel like the whole conversation was about your versions of success with the ladies of what you've done with your art. But do you have a succinct way of saying, like, what is your version of success? What is that marker that says to you, I'm successful at what I'm trying to do? I think, honestly, I do this sort of meditation journaling in the morning. And I think it's if I can get through the day remembering to sometimes think about that, you know, remembering to just pause. Mm-hmm. You know, for me now, from my fast vantage point of age, I think it's just remembering to try and do the good stuff that helps. If I can think, no, actually I stopped and just breathed for two minutes and noticed that flower. That's pretty successful in my book because I'm so overwhelmed. I, I love that. <laughs> that you, yeah, instead of like being a big thing, you're just – you're celebrating the daily little successes of recognizing yeah, totally stuffed what's up wonderful in your life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't worry about the big things. I think it's lower your expectations. Oh. My gorgeous husband said, <laughs> you know, lower your expectations. And it's really wise. It doesn't mean abandon hope. Absolutely doesn't mean that. Right. It just means just be realistic. Okay. Well, tell people what you're up to and where they could find your work. I know you have a trip coming up that you want to talk about. Yeah. I have got a website, afterthemonsoon.com. Way more interesting than that would be the Summer Nut website. If people want to read about the ladies' copula rights blogs, and that's a really interesting website. We have got a trip coming to Nepal where my gorgeous friend Bishnu and I, for two weeks, take a group of women around. We, we look at women's projects in Nepal and it's very much the road less travelled. So once you leave Kathmandu, they'll hardly see any other tourists. We're leaving on the 19th of November and there are spaces. Mm-hmm, yeah. So, And we're doing it in collaboration with another fabulous organisation called Project Diddy. So maybe we can put that in the notes. Yeah, we didn't talk a lot about your actual artwork. There's a whimsy to your artwork and there's a lot of colour in your artwork. So we look forward to seeing some of that. And I'll post some of that on the social media pages during the week as well so people yeah. can see your actual work as well as hear about the ladies. Yeah. Okay. So okay. much easier to talk and, about the ladies, isn't it? Well, it's just such an interesting point it of view, is. what you've done, yeah. and how you got into it and how they see things. I think it's a really good reminder for us to step back and think about there's another way to look at what we do. Yeah. You know, yeah. than what's kind of fed to us so constantly. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing all this with us, Wendy. I really appreciate you showing up for this and, and giving us all these words of wisdom. Oh, God, so don't thank say you. that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a lot to take from this. So, I really appreciate that. I just, I think the overwhelming thing is I feel so lucky that I have had this life. Well, thanks for sharing it with us. All right, gorgeous to talk.
Isn't she a kick? I love chatting with Wendy. Always, I walk away seeing the world in such a different light. How did her comments strike you? Did you get thinking about your identity as an artist, your need for attribution and recognition, if that's a thing, for your work? How much do you appreciate the small things and how other people across the world view their role as an artist? I just find it so interesting to consider that people are out there making artistic work without really any thought of ego. It's just such a prevalent thing in our Western culture and hard to get away from. If you have your own thoughts about that or some interesting stories of your own from experiencing viewpoints through other people and other cultures, please do write me. I'd love to hear your stories. You can write me through the contact page of the sagearts.com website or on social media, on Facebook or Instagram, on the Sage Arts podcast pages. Follow me there and let's get a conversation going. And you can do that in the post comments or you can send me a direct message. Also remember to hit the follow button on your podcast player if you're listening to me on Apple or Spotify or Google or or whatnot. You can get info on all the things we talked about as well as links to the donation buttons if you want to give back in the show notes and on the sagearts.com website. And if you want to keep up to date on related activities, like when I reschedule that Zoom call and get any extra material offered to go with various episodes, click that news and notices button on the homepage of the Sage Arts website to just get a little Sunday morning email. I don't use that email list for anything else, I promise you. And if you have a second, consider giving me a review on your podcast player. Reviews and follows help move the podcast up on the search list, or so I'm told. And that will help us get more people in on these conversations, kind of expanding our little community here, right? And yeah, in the meantime, go into your studio, know that everything you do there is necessary and precious. Cherish those small successes. Stay curious and feed that muse of yours. Be true, as usual, to your brand of weirdness. And I'll catch you here for the next episode of the Sage Arts Podcast.